Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 162. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Bruce Bennett. He'll be here in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed, all that good stuff. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. The admission price is free. All you have to do is share it. That's all we ask, so please do tell your friends. It's a great show. The best two hours of poetry on the radio, even though it's not on the radio. It's the Rattlecast. It's going to be a weird show today, a little bit, because we have um, construction going on. If you hear banging and stuff upstairs, we're getting new floors put in. The 30-year-old wall-to-wall carpeting that we've had in this house is finally being taken out. And uh, also, I have, for the first time ever, our cat in here, so the cat doesn't get out while the people come and go. So we might have our first cat photobomb. Winston, the new kitten, um, he's a tuxedo, and he's hiding behind the computer. So um, we'll see if he jumps out and, and attacks me or not. But this is the Rattlecast. So glad you could join me. We're going to start out with um, Poetry Spawn, as we always do. And uh, we have uh, Sunday's poet right here, Katie Kempel, with her poem, Trajectory. And here she is, Katie. Hey, Katie, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's really nice to see you. The second time you've been in Rattle. Um, and it's uh, great to see you. So, so do you want to explain what this poem was about, first of all? Yeah, sure. Well, I always love um, science news and I'm always keeping an eye out for interesting stories and, you know, thinking about ways that they relate to life down here on Earth. And I've been excitedly following the news of the DART spacecraft, um, you know, for the past few weeks and, you know, just wondering if that crash landing into the asteroid was actually going to be a success or not. Uh, knowing that so much time and planning uh, goes into these missions um, from NASA, and it just takes years and years uh, to get to that point. So, um, and of course, you know, my family were really excited to see uh, that moment where the scientists in the room sort of like all cheer, realizing that they the mission has been completed. Um, at least, you know, what they've been able to plan has been completed. It'll take years to figure out whether this mission was a success or not. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You know, at the same time, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to ask if you knew how successful it was. So I guess not. Like, were they, is there any, because I'm like lost in my poetry world. I haven't seen any updates. If they um, were able to actually like deflect it in any way, they don't know yet? They don't know. And I don't think they will know for quite a while. Um, the successful part was that it it crash landed as planned <laughs> and they have photos as planned. So um, that part was a success. But yeah, it'll take a very long time to figure out if this plan worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, on a personal level for me, one of the things that I loved about the news stories was how they were really trying to be good science communicators and give us a sense of scale. So for instance, I read a couple articles where they compared the size of the spacecraft to a vending machine and to a um, golf cart. Uh And I thought, oh, that's so great because now I can actually picture the size of this thing. And they compared the little um, Italian camera that was traveling with it to a toaster. And so as I was sitting in my kitchen kind of figuring out how this might make a poem, I was looking at my toaster. Next to my toaster is my refrigerator. And I thought, oh, well, that's about the size of a vending machine. So that's that's what took off 
from California last year on this mission. Uh -huh. Something that size is going to have a huge impact. Um, at the same time in my personal life, I have my oldest child enter high school this year. And the two just sort of seemed ripe for comparison. Um, how, you know, as a parent, we're also, you know, taking a long time to conceive and and to to raise our kids. And high school is one of those moments where it's like, Ooh, blast off. I, I hope you do okay out there, kiddo. Um, and so those two kind of combined in my mind, and I thought there might be something poetic here to explain, you know, just how humanity puts these beings and these creations out in the world. And it takes a very long time to know what kind of impact we've had. And we might never know the true impact. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, great. I love, I mean, the, the highlight for me was the refrigerator metaphor, which everyone, if you haven't read it yet, you'll see in a minute. But why don't you go ahead and read it? Trajectory. Okay, great. <clears throat> Trajectory. NASA crashes spacecraft into asteroid, passing planetary defense test. The Washington Post, September 26th, 2022. How many years does it take to orchestrate a crash landing? I pretend it's 15. That engineers conceived of DART in a room, outrageously courageous. Their target, Dimorphos, a moon orbiting an asteroid. While around the same time, I brought a child onto the Earth, whose chosen name rhymes with arrow, which is a sort of DART. And I see that the little spacecraft left California last November, only the size of a refrigerator. I picture hours, sleek and silver, blast off from the kitchen through the roof, traveling 10 long months to the high school, whose football field is approximately the size of the asteroid's moon. There's no coming back from this. Just as in June, my child lifted off from the middle school and now, touchdown, explodes into the rocky maze of ninth grade classrooms. An Italian camera the size of a toaster followed the ship to record the collision. The paparazzi takes photos and photos, like me, to capture the juncture prodigiously, sending images back to a cheering crowd of scientists who by now are family. They say it takes a village to raise a kid, but what is their trajectory? To be a parent is to see your child nudge humanity, a body that leaves your kitchen and makes an impact that ripples out for all eternity. Yeah, excellent poem and metaphor there, Katie. That was Katie Kempel with Trajectory. Uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the show tonight and sharing that poem. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Um, and now we're going to switch to uh, a preview of tomorrow's poem. We have uh, Sonia Greenfield here. Um, Sonia is, a, of course, a regular of Poetry Spawn, one of our most popular. And actually, I've, I've said before, last time she was on, um, it was her poem about the um, Sago mining disaster that made me think of Poetry Spawn in the first place. So um, here she is, Sonia Greenfield. If she could, I mean, yeah, hey, Sonia, how you doing? I'm good, Tim. How you doing? I'm great. It's great to see you again. So, um, so your poem was a kind of a, an interesting, slightly funny, slightly sad poem. Do you want to explain what, what your poem was about, which is everyone's going to read tomorrow. No one has yet. Sure. So um, I was probably trying to procrastinate on grading. So I opened up Twitter. And one of the first things that I saw was a tweet from NPR. 
for a um, story that McDonald's is going to be um, launching a Happy Meal for adults. And so um, I immediately started thinking, gosh, and that there was going to be like um, toys in the in the adult Happy Meal. And I was like, like, what would an adult want in a Happy Meal? And then the poem almost just wrote itself when I started to think about like, you know, what would I want in a Happy Meal? So, um, so yeah, that's where it came from. There will soon be a McDonald's Happy Meal for adults. And then the epigraph is tweet from NPR News, September 29th. I got my first Happy Meal on a Friday after a week of grading and department Zooms, of talking my mother through crises of health, of IEP meetings for my son, of smoothing new creases with night cream, of the first frost to kill this summer's garden, and the red box with golden arches promised salt, the comfortable familiarity of fries that taste like America's best promise, the tang of pickles like primordial brine, but also something more, the surprise prize inside. What do you call the existentialism of autumn's dying light? Red glow, just a smudge of ketchup along the horizon while you wait for a minimum wage worker to hand you an analog for happiness from her bright window and into the dark recess of your car. But I digress. The first toy I got was a Tana French novel, one I read before, having read them all already. Still, I switched on the cab light to read, loving as I do murder and stabbing fries into my mouth. The next Friday, again, so hungry for a thing I hope to feed at Mickey D's, another red box full of hope, hope held aloft and motionless in Marietta's hands for those split seconds before I can grab it, hope woven of cars merry-go-rounding through the pickup line. The next toy was a decent bottle of red, and I shouldn't have, but I drank half right where I was parked, close to the building in order to read last week's French novel by the fluorescence beaming from the dining room into the sulk of dusk. The following week, I got a certificate for a massage. So I finished the other half of the bottle in the car, washing down my early death dubbed fast food with Cabernet and closing the final pages of the novel against its doom, all in order to roll up on the bodywork parlor. What do you call the existentialism of men and women starving for touch, skin beneath their clothes as urgent to absorb the masseuse's oil as an apple pie dipped into a fryer. Their bodies snaking in a line through three neighborhoods just to get in, just to have hands laid upon them. You don't have to answer. It was rumored the following week was to be somehow a hot tub and the week after a babysitter, though I don't know how they would have pulled it off. We never found out. For a while, cars slipped into the lot and sat there with engines idling, silhouettes of their drivers like statues carved in the name of confusion. Then they backed out into the street again. I heard that McDonald's 
citing the immense expense of adult happiness, had discontinued the program. Yeah, excellent poem, Sonia. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, once again, that was uh, there will soon be a McDonald's Happy Meal for adults. And it's a great example of um, just what great poems do and that the way you... I'm surprised that, that you said it came out kind of in one go because it... Um, the, the way that each line sort of has a turn in it, like you, you expect it to go someplace and then you push it like one step farther. Just a great example of um, good stuff in poetry. Um, so thanks so much for writing that and sharing it. And, um, and how, long, how long did it take you to write that? Let me just ask. Um, it took me a couple hours, yeah. mm-hmm. I would say, to write it. Yeah, because I... I um, I was I was literally sitting down to do some grading. I was at my desk at school in, in you know my cubicle, and I read that tweet. And then I actually tweeted some snarky thing about yeah, people should put uh, hot tubs and and happy meals. And then and then I started it. And then I by the time I drove home mm-hmm. that afternoon from school, I read it to my carpool buddy. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks so much. I'm so glad you could write great poems so quick. Uh, thanks, Sonia, for joining us today. Thank you. Yep, take care. Okay, bye. Uh, Sonia Greenfit once again, where there will soon be a McDonald's Happy Meal for adults. Uh, now we're going to take a quick break, and I will be right back with our main guest, Bruce Bennett. So hang tight and uh, sit right there, and I will be right back. back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, as I mentioned, Bruce Bennett is our guest. Bruce was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1940. He received his ABAM and PhD from Harvard and taught at Oberlin College from 1967 to 1970, where he co-founded and served as editor of Field. In 1970, he moved back to Cambridge, where he co-founded and served as editor of Plowshares. I mean, can you imagine Field and Plowshares, two of the best magazines ever? Like, I think uh, when I was a student, People ask, like, what are the two best literary magazines? And they probably said Plowshares and Fields. So um, it's pretty cool. Uh, Bruce is the author of 10 books of poetry and more than 30 poetry chapbooks. His new and selected poems, Navigating the Distances, was chosen by Booklist as one of the top 10 poetry books of 1999. And Just Another Day in Just Our Town um, from 2000 to 2016 was published by Orchises in January 2017 and has gone into a second printing. His newest project was right here, Images into Words, a series of ecrastic poems co-authored by Jim Krenner. And here he is, uh, Bruce Bennett. Hey, Bruce, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, great to see you. And um, I have to say, I mean, I think you seem to have like the ideal life to me because you are uh, in Aurora, New York, with a, with a former mayor of Aurora, New York, I guess, right on the Finger Lakes for the last however many years, just the most right. beautiful place. How, how are the leaves doing this time of year? They really haven't started yet. No. Uh, people who are driving from the south have said some have started, but we we, we haven't had many changes yet. Yeah, no. well, it's just the, the most gorgeous place. And then there's really a nice culture. You know, you got Ithaca there and you got Syracuse and Rochester. Right. Cause I, I grew up in Rochester. It's just a, I, I, I love to live there. Um, yeah, it's a great area. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But it's great to have you on the show. Do you want to start us out with a poem? Do you want to start with um, Images Into Words, or, or how do you want to go? Uh, hmm. I could start with uh, a rather dark poem that was uh, the title poem of 
one of my last chapbooks, uh, Swimming in a Watering Can, which was actually published uh, the year I retired from Wells in 2014. Uh, the, uh, the publisher, as a favor, uh, did it at the last minute so that I could actually read it when I was just finishing teaching. And the first poem, the title poem is a sonnet. And I write a lot of sonnets, partly because I like I like the form so much. And I think a whole lot can be done in 14 lines, not only with the story, but also with uh, suggestion. And so, <clears throat> so this is kind of a small dramatic monologue as a sonnet. Swimming in a watering can. Something was stuck. I thought it was some leaves, so I poured out the water from the top. There was this lump. I saw it was a mouse. He must have tried to drink and lost his balance. I stood there staring, just a little lump, wet on the wet ground. Nothing could have saved him. Who could have heard? Who would have heard a mouse swimming? And it was outside in the dark. I don't know why the thought of that upsets me. Maybe it's all the other stuff. It's just that awful image, paddling in the water, helpless and desperate, nothing to catch hold of, feeling your strength fail, little by little by little, paddling and paddling, sinking, all alone. Yeah, well, maybe it wasn't the best choice for my farewell to teaching because students came up afterward and were concerned about it. <laughs> it's a dramatic poem. You don't have to worry. I'm completely happy. Yeah, it definitely is. I was going to say, I hope you don't feel that way. Um, no, I don't. I, but uh, Tim, I did want to add, I mentioned this to you in notes, um, that for about 20 years, I've been closely associated with a magazine that's published by SUNY Upstate Medical Center called The Healing Muse. And a number of the poems I sent you, but also a number of poems I've written during that time have been published in The Healing Muse. And it's a great venue for poems about illness, but also healing. Uh, and uh, I, I support it strongly. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about that? I was curious, and you know, we love you know poetry as healing around here. And, um, um, and, and so, so how is that magazine used? Is it, um, um, is it, is it given away, like to, to hand it out at the hospital that it, where it's, where it's based it's in? Good. Yeah. Uh, there was talk of doing that. It's, uh, it's an annual magazine. Mm -hmm. I think the, uh, deadlines around, um, uh, early April or maybe mid or late April, um, uh, comes out once a year. Uh, there's usually reading in October uh, it was founded by a uh, poet named Bonnie St. Andrews, who wrote to me when I was running the writing program at Wells, wrote to me out of the blue, sent me a chapbook of hers, which happened to be called The Healing Muse. And I invited her right away. And uh, it was just about the time she was starting the magazine. And then a few, and this was a regular thing. I was starting to have The Healing Muse come every year just as visiting uh, event, writer's event, and Bonnie St. Andrews died of a brain tumor, uh, I think in 2003. Mm -hmm. And so her partner, uh, Deirdre Nealon, took it up and is now still the editor. But um, 
it's not only poetry, it's all sorts of prose, uh, fiction and nonfiction, artwork, and uh, it's really beautifully produced. They're supported strongly by the, uh, you know, the medical center. And so it's, it's just a good place to send that kind of poem so people could just Google it and check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, I have the website right here. It was at um, um, upstate.edu slash bioethics slash the yep. healing muse, oh. all one word. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so very cool project. And um, uh, but, but so, Bruce, let's uh, start at the beginning of how you became a poet. Did, did you always have an interest in poetry when you were young? I mean, you were found, you founded Field at 30. Um, so you were, <laughs> by, by then you were already say, going. Yeah. I love that you're giving me, uh, I, I deserve maybe credit because I was there. I was one of several Oberlin faculty members who wrote poetry or were translators. Uh, David Young, who uh, just has been the editor all along, and Stuart Freeber, who passed away a few years ago, were really the prime movers. And then there were three or four others of us who were on the faculty and wrote poetry. Uh, and we got together, and Oberlin was already a center then for visiting writers. They had a very active program. And so when people decided uh, this would be a good idea, let's have first-class literary magazine, they just wrote lots of letters to all the poets, and people knew who they were and perhaps had already been there. So we got wonderful submissions for the very first issue. I went to the Wells Library and happily found a total uh, uh, bound field. for. uh, So I went to the beginning, and uh, just at the... I was curious because I had forgotten a lot of this, and I was glad to see it. But in the first issue, I'm just skipping a lot of people, but very first issue, William Stafford, Lewis Simpson, Robert Francis, Donald Hall, uh, Denise Levertoff, Marvin Bell, Wendell Berry, Robert Bly, and Gary Snyder, and so forth. Um, Stuart Freebert was very fierce, and one of the things about uh, the magazine is they were not going to publish criticism by critics. They would publish essays about poetry by poets. Mm. But no matter how good a critic, critical essay of somebody would be, uh, that would be rejected out of hand. Uh, so, and, and the other thing is uh, there was just this tremendous insistence from the beginning that it just be the, the the best quality work, and one of the po- one of the poets they invited to submit was Adrian Rich, uh-huh. and uh, Stewart said, "No, this isn't this isn't up. It's not one of her best poems. It isn't up to what the standards we want. We can't publish it." And so we gave him the job of writing back to her, and she was not very happy about it. But subsequently, she did have poems in the field. So mm-hmm. um, I have not kept up with it all the years. Um, because I left Oberlin the year after it was founded, but it was great to be around for that. And then Plowshares, when I moved to Cambridge, I, I gave up a tenure track position at Oberlin in order to write because I was grading three or 400 papers a term and I wasn't getting any writing done and I really wanted to do my own work. And so I went back to Cambridge and one of the people there was DeWitt Henry, who had been in English graduate school with me and DeWitt is a, was a great organizer. And uh, so he was the prime mover for Plowshares. 
but there were in the area a whole lot of local writers. And so there were six or seven of us who got together. And the idea was the rotating editorship to represent the different poets, uh, different kinds of poetry in the area. And I was just looking back. I also, at the library, got the bound early uh, plowshares. And it reminded me of a lot of things. Um, as the first editors, we got in touch with writers that we really respected whose work we wanted to see in print. And uh, I remembered that a uh, Oberlin student had written an absolutely terrific story. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was called Gloria, Gloria. And I had forgotten, but it is in the first issue of Plowshares. And I am still in touch with her. She'll probably watch this at some point. So that oh, yeah. was a long time ago, but these poetry friendships remain. Yeah, for sure. That's wonderful. It just must have been amazing to be around in that era. Like that feels like the golden mm -hmm. age of American poetry, maybe, because that was when the MFA programs just were exploding. And then all the, you know, the, you know, yeah. in independent presses and, and presses related to universities just became such a huge thing. It feels like that was the era of like generation. And now we're in sort of the era of disintegration or something as more and more <laughs> journals, like I think field, I'm going to have to look it up. I think they stopped publishing, didn't I they, just, this year? I hate to say this, but I, I didn't realize because I hadn't been keeping up with it. And they stopped publication. David Young retired from the editorship after 50 years and 100 issues. Uh, but it's just got the most extraordinary record. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, with Plowshares, I've had poems published in it long time after I was editor. But... Uh, it's there are too many magazines to keep up with. And when I was teaching, I just couldn't. I had to stop subscriptions to most of them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and there's, there's not rattle, there. of course. Yeah, of course, of course. And actually, yeah, I can confirm you've been a subscriber for for a very long time. So I appreciate that. Um, let, let's hear another poem, and then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, sure. the poems it's, themselves. Yeah. Did you have one, Tim, that you wanted? Um, no. Why don't we just go through yeah. and read? Yeah, what you sent. Uh, okay, because you said that the prompt that I sent in might be something people would be interested in. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, it is. That's going to be at the end of the show, but we could tell oh, okay. what it is now if you want. Well, there's a prompt that uh, I've been writing a number of sort of uh, autobiographical poems, mainly sonnets, and I was going to use this as an epigraph for that collection uh, Wordsworth's comments about spots of time from the prelude, and uh, maybe I'll just I'll... read the I'll read the prompt now, so everybody. Uh... Oh, okay, read the prompt, yeah. and then I'll. So this is going to be next week's prompt. Instead, of, we'll give you a preview of it right now, earlier in the show. This is uh, it right here. Um, um, in his long autobiographical poem, "The Prelude," uh, Wordsworth writes about what he called spots of time, small memorable events we experience that thereafter remain in our consciousness and give profoundest knowledge, helping us determine who and what we are and what we may become. Write a poem in which you focus on one of these spots of time in your own life and what it has subsequently meant to you. So that's going to be the prompt for next week, which will, I'll read it again at the end of the show for everybody who's looking at it then. But, uh, but thanks for that, Bruce. So, um, yeah, so this, this poem came from that type of prompt. Well, you could, you could think of it as a kind of an epiphany, but something that happens that you not only remember, but when you think back on it, uh, and you can recreate it in a poem. It's like a poem is like the photograph of, of memory. And so, so uh, 
I had written, I, when I was a freshman, I remember uh, clinging to the words of my beloved philosophy professor uh, because I was trying to find out you know, essentially the meaning of the universe and whether it was worth continuing and so forth. And he had spoken about the, the moral order and he had teas at his uh, house uh, Thursday afternoons. And one time I went to one of the teas, I waited till everybody left. And then I just guessed, blurted out the question, is there a moral order? And I felt like I he had to answer that and who else but he could answer it. And I wrote a pantoum a long time afterward, which attempts to recreate that scene. And I think pantoums are good uh, kind of form to recreate something and keep it in, in the form that it, it comes out of. This is called a moral order. I stayed late after tea to ask the question, is there a moral order? I had to know. The world stood still. I waited for his answer. Outside, the day was gray. It had been raining. Is there a moral order? I had to know. He stood and looked at me. I heard the clock. Outside, the day was gray. It had been raining. He cleared his throat. His wife was in the kitchen. He stood and looked at me. I heard the clock. I knew that it was late. The pause was awkward. We were alone. His wife was in the kitchen. I sensed that he was searching for the words. I knew that it was late. The pause was awkward. Is there a moral order? I had to know. I know now he was searching for the words. I stayed late after tea to ask that question. Yeah, that was the moral order. And so, and, uh, so Bruce, is there a moral order? <laughs> I'm still asking, uh, but I did want to say uh, I gravitated toward the pantoum in this in uh, in this and other poems that are like the Wordsworth spots of time because it gathers and repeats like a lot of my poems, and I think many most people watching perhaps poets know what a pantoum is, but it's where the second and the fourth lines of a stanza are repeated as the first and third. And then it comes back and ends with the first line. Um, I wrote, if you don't mind, I wrote one other that's a kind of spot of time poem. It's also a pantoum. Um, um, and this was a memory that I had from my childhood when I traveled with my mother to Springfield, Mass, where her mother was buried. And this is called My Mother by Her Mother's Grave. My mother by her mother's grave. This is what it all comes to. I am that child again, standing next to her. Why does that come back to me today? This is what it all comes to. Those words hang in the air. We are alone there. Why does that come back to me today? I can see the stone, the ground, hear wind in the trees. Those words hang in the air. We are alone there. She didn't say it to me. She didn't hold my hand. I can see the stone, the ground, hear wind in the trees. She said it to herself. She felt it. She was alone there. She didn't say it to me. She didn't hold my hand. 
I am that child again. I am standing next to her. She said it to herself. She felt it. She was alone there. This is what it all comes to. Mm. Yeah, another great pantoum, My Mother by Her Mother's Grave by Bruce Bennett. Um, so, Bruce, we've seen uh, two son- or two pantoums and a sonnet now, and you mo- mm-hmm. write mostly in form. So what is it that you think, although you don't always write in form, um, but what is it you think that, that draws you to form in particular? Like, what do you get out of using a, a poem in form? Is it that the finished product feels complete, or is it like that the writing comes better when you have that kind of laddered scaffolding to work off of? What is it that draws you to form, would you say? Uh, I think for me... It's a fairly easy question to answer because I'm old enough. And when I started writing, I I think I started writing when I was about eight years old. Um, and almost all the poems that I knew, or just about all of them, on through high school, practically into college, uh, were formal poems. Um, I don't know. My mother wrote poetry. And it was very similar to the kind of poetry uh, I started to write. Uh, We once found a manuscript that was handwritten, and I thought it was poems I wrote, and it turned out to be something she wrote when she was 14 or 15. Uh, So maybe to some extent this proclivity for form is inherited on my part, like the way musicians run in families. Um, When I taught say, modern American poetry at Wells, which I did from actually at Oberlin and from the beginning at Wells, it was Pound, Elliot, Stevens, Frost, and Williams. Uh, no women at, the, in, at that point, but my uh, contemporary American poetry course was by half women. <clears throat> but uh, I really was very influenced, I think, by Pound and Williams. Um, and, and I guess to some extent by all the poets, I think all the poets I really loved and taught, I also was very much influenced by. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you think about a poem like a triolet with an eight-line poem with a two, two lines to begin with that are also the two lines you end with, and the first line is also the fourth line, that's an eight-line stanza with two rhymes. And there are only three new lines you write. And like the uh, Kenneth, Ken Burns uh, poem that, that Rattle published, um, I found that poems like uh, Triolets just, just about write themselves. I mean, the next line just comes. And I've done it for a long time. I don't really think about it, but they literally, the form is writing a poem, but it's what I also want to write. I'm not, it's not making me write something, it's helping me write something. Yeah, for sure. And, and what do you think about the, the turn toward free verse, or if you can even call it verse, I mean, free free writing or whatever. Um, do, do you, th- I don't know, do you have students, of course, who, who um, probably want to write that way and resist any formal poetry? And then the majority of stuff that's published, unless it's a journal that's known for publishing formal poetry, right. is free verse. Um, What do you think of that turn toward it? Do you think, because I've talked to a lot of people who think that that's the reason why poetry isn't as popular anymore, 
Um, you know, it's because we don't have that sort of thing to hold on to, the, the rhyme and meter. Um, and so that the general public doesn't appreciate it as much and doesn't feel that in their ear and in their heart in the same way. And, um, and I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about that? Why do you think we turned away from it? And, and do you think that was a good thing or not? Uh, uh, I have, would have a really complicated answer. I taught creative writing at Wells for more than 40 years. And I very rarely had students writing formal poetry. And I probably should have had them write more formal poetry. My formalist friends can't believe that I didn't give them constant exercises in form. But I always, I, I love teaching things like um, uh, short story writing and creative nonfiction also. And I, I simply let students start to write and then we dealt with the poems that they wrote. And hardly anybody wrote um, formal poems. And I have to say that the formal poems often were, were not good, were not as good as the free verse poems. It, as you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was a real change in American poetry to free verse. And I do identify with formalists and have a lot, a great many wonderful formalist friends, but I, I don't actually have a strong preference. I don't get a poem in, in free verse and and react against it at all. I just try to respond to the poem itself. And I think the poetry speaks for itself, whatever form it's in. Um, so I would be for anybody writing anything that works for them. But what you really need to do is have it express some deep current of feeling in yourself. You've got to find the thing that really makes you want to write and then find out the way to do it. A lot of my poems, especially the more recent poems, have to do with trying to find moments in which I discovered I this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's hear another one because we have a lot of poems and, and these are great. So we should we should read some more. Uh, so I I ran the visiting writing series at Wells for a long time. I had wonderful poets coming and it was great to turn on students to poetry and have the writers not only give a reading, but come to workshops and meet with them for conferences and things. Um, and so uh, I loved going to readings everywhere in Rochester and just Ithaca, of course. And one of the, uh, looking for a particular poem. So the other night I uh, attended as uh, in Zoom uh, a reading in uh, Syracuse at the Downtown Writers. Uh, Phil Memmer runs a great program there at the Y, and he's just written a new book uh, called Cairns, which is dialogues, short poems that are dialogues between Sisyphus and the rock. Uh, and I don't have the book yet, but I really liked it. And I sent uh, I sent Phil the uh, a poem of mine that I had written a long time ago uh, that was about freshman year. This is also a sonnet, but um, we had meetings. The freshmen would get together and uh, the tutor would um, just have general discussions. And this was remembering one of those. It's called Vigil. Um, um, and of course, the myth of Sisyphus people are fortunately still familiar with 
my freshman year, we just had read Camus. The question was, what if the world should end tomorrow morning? How would we choose to spend our final hours? What would each one do? Some took it as a joke. I'd drink, I'd screw, I'd kill that bastard who'd messed up my friend. Others would pray. One, say he, one said he'd seek to mend ties with his family. Silent, I knew exactly how I'd pass that final night. I'd take a pen and go somewhere alone where I could be completely on my own and where, immersed in silence, I would write. How long ago, how much has happened, how little has changed. I'd say the same thing now. And that was Vigil, again, by Bruce Bennett. Um, so, so why would you say that is? I mean, why? I think I've. I think you write every day, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And um, what is it that keeps you coming back to the chair every day? And, and yeah. you know, do you ever feel like you're going to run out? And and what is it that, if if the world was ending, why is that what you would do? Even if nobody. I mean, the thing about that, of course, is that nobody could read what you've written if that was the last hour of, of the hour it's of the a, time. It's a very Camus-like question. Uh, <laughs> But people could pose it to themselves. What would you do? I mean, people, it's almost a parlor game sometimes. Uh, but I'm remembering something else. One of the poets that I greatly admired and was able to bring to Wells right away after I started teaching here, because I had been at Oberlin and had met quite a number of poets, including Merwin, Gary Snyder, William Stafford, Robert Bly, and so forth. Uh, Stafford was a poet who was quite important to me. He's a wonderful poet. And the second issue of Field, he wrote an essay called A Way of Writing. And that is on, one can find it online just by looking at William Stafford, A Way of Writing. I used that the whole time I was teaching in creative writing classes because it is about daily writing. It's about not being too critical of yourself, you know, not just letting yourself write, see what happens. If nobody nobody needs to see it, if it's not any good. But he was a Kansas farm boy, and he woke up early, and he said all his life he just started. He set some time aside and started to write. So I recommended to students to read a way of writing. I think it influenced me. I didn't always write every day, but I have for the past thirty or so years, um, and. I just, I love it. I, I don't feel the day is complete and I do not worry. I'm not worried about jinxing myself. They're saying, <laughs> what if I don't write a poem tomorrow? I will write a poem. Uh, it might only be a couplet. It might not be something that I would ever show anybody. I haven't shown, hardly anybody has seen most of my work. I, it just is there. But it makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you save it all? Do you have like a calendar or some kind of file? Yeah. <laughs> Don't talk to my wife. Yes, I say it all. Uh, I have binders and binders going back to the late, uh, early 70s, I guess, or late 60s. So yes, a huge amount of poems, and that's to keep them, you know, in, in archive form. Mm -hmm. uh, you worry about what will happen to your computer if something happens. So 
I at least have hard copies of everything. Yeah. And what would you say to somebody who, you know, says like, like me, I think I don't have time to write every day. I wish I would love to, to spend a half an hour, an hour every day. But instead, I'm, I'm doing it an hour before the Rattlecast, trying to write one, and then uh, while the roofers are banging on my, my floor upstairs. So what, uh, <laughs> so, so what would you say to that? How, how do you oh, overcome that sense a lot. of lack of time? I did say to this a lot, Tim, to students, because they said, I don't have time. I'm really stressed. I don't have time. I said, you could write, just give yourself 10 minutes. You know, you're jogging or you're, you know, this was a lot of this was before computers, but you know, the, people waste a whole lot of time. Give yourself just 15 minutes to just sit and think. Um, and stuff always, that's what Stafford said. Something will always come to you. And once you start to follow it and it might lead somewhere. Um, and you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't, but it, it's always worked for me. And, you know, if I'm, I mean, I don't go around saying I've got to write a poem. I just am open to the Lucille Clifton, who came to Wells a number of times, one of our favorite poets, would just say, if a poem comes knocking, I want to be home. Yeah. yeah. Let it come. Be open to the possibility of it. And, and it will come. And then if it doesn't come, you know, it'll come another time. But just let your life be open to the possibility of poetry. Would you say um, it's changed you um, writing every day? Like, how has that influenced your life? Because it is a kind of meditation or a kind of prayer, um, a kind of thing that, that might seem like it brings peace and understanding and sort of fulfillment in a way that other things might not as a daily practice. Do you, do you feel that way? Do you feel like it's changed you to do that? I feel like I've always needed and wanted to do this. And when I quit a tenure track position at Oberlin, which I loved, I loved the college, I, my colleagues were great, and I especially loved the students. And But I felt like my job was to write poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't getting done. And I, I was single, I could see myself, you know, being a well-liked professor at a wonderful college you know, into my old age. And I didn't want that. I, I was willing to risk that. Um, but I do remember when I was in, I think, third grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Worthley, which is a great name for a third grade teacher. And I remember asking her very seriously. I don't I think it was after class and not during class. But I said, uh, uh, if if I want to write something, should I wait till I have something to say, or should I just write it? And Mrs. Worthley, God bless her, said, no, you should just write it. And I'm not giving her credit for that. I probably would have come to that anyway. But uh, why not? You know, why not just give yourself the license to to write things? And this is in the spirit of Stafford. And it did work, I think, pretty well for students. I think um, Stafford, when he came to Wells, he said... uh, uh, in front of a very large audience, because people loved his work, um, somebody said, "But what if it's if if what you're writing is not good enough?" And he had kind of a twinkle in his eye, and he said, "Your standards can never be too low." <laughs> and funny. I looked at one of my I looked at one of my severe colleagues, who was horrified because he had always insisted on the highest standards, and you don't do anything unless it's going to be perfect. And I could just see him. I, I mean, he would have left the room if he could. And I think Stafford knew that. I, he, I mean, he was a lifelong professor, but um, 
you know, he knew what he was saying, that your standards can never be too low. Then the critic can come in and then you can decide whether you want to, you know, keep it or not. Nobody needs to see it, mm-hmm. but let's, don't be too hard on yourself. See what you can, see what comes out and then let it, let it happen and then see what happens. Well, well, this is a calling for, for writing. I mean, so much that you left the tenure track position. Do you worry a lot about finding an audience and, and, ha- and promoting books and that aspect of it? Is that something yeah. that you, you enjoy too and, and you do anything about or do you just let that happen as well? I don't do as much about it as, as I used to try to do. Uh, I know a great number of poets and they're very good poets. And a common theme among them is uh, no one's ever going to read my work. You know, I'm devoting my life to this. This is the thing that means most to me in the world. And, you know, they, they don't say it's futile and they're not suicidal, but they have this recognition that it's probably never going to be read. And I have a lot of uh, books and chapbooks they're almost all small press. I mean, my first book was Cleveland State, and that, of course, is a good university press. But many of my books, uh, like the Orchises books, are beautifully done. Roger Lathbury in Alexandria, Virginia, you know, had a great publishing house, with, but it was a one-man house. He published really good books. But, uh, you know, that's different from having a publisher who is, you know, listing things in catalogs and getting gigs for you. And so I don't know who's read, you know, I don't know who's read my books. I'd like, I know that, that uh, because of the book list, uh, 10 best, you know, navigating the distance was called one of the 10 best books of the year. Suddenly libraries all over the country ordered that. So that's out in libraries. And I gave a, reading at a school where uh, many of the students were given copies of um, uh, Just Another Day in Just Our Town. And that's essentially why it did a second printing. I mean, you know, I I wanted them to have it and it was great, but no, uh, poetry books don't sell very much. And even, you know, even at a reading when you have books and people like it, I mean, I've I've had books available and people have just taken them because they didn't realize I was selling them. And I didn't really care that much. I would rather have them read. But no, it's that that part is very frustrating because you, you know, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of really good poetry that anybody would like. I mean, from accessible to extremely difficult. Uh, it's all out there. And I used to say this a lot when I was teaching and bringing wonderful writers to Wells. Everybody would say that was really terrific. And uh, still, you know, nobody was buying the books and nobody was really reading poetry. I don't know what you do about that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Um... We've done a lot, incidentally, Tim, by rattle, I think. It's well, really happy. Really happy to. Um, a lot of people are probably going to buy the book, a, a book this week. So since you have so many, um, just a quick question. But what book would you recommend of all the books of yours buying if, if someone's going to buy one book? Uh, probably Just Another Day in Just Our Town because that's uh, new and selected and has poems from, I don't even remember, but up through 2016, 2000 to 2016. Mm-hmm. And it is representative um, a lot of formal poems, a lot of villanelles. I write 
rather large number of villanelles, a lot of free verse, more personal poems at the end. Um, and great, uh, one of my books was, uh, if I can find it, Taking Off. One of the things that I do in my poetry, I realize is take off from things, newspaper articles, things I hear, things I read. Um, and you had mentioned at the beginning, the images into words. But I did the same thing with paintings uh, in that. Um, I'll go to a museum. My wife's an art historian. I am no expert in art, although I love going to museums and looking at paintings. Um, but when I'm looking at a painting, it's the same kind of taking off. Um, I'll look at it, and it'll, it'll be a story or, an, or a detail, and I will take off from that. So in, in images into words, my poems just kind of take off from the paintings. Um, Jim Craner, the other poet in the book, is a wonderful poet. Um, he has most of many of the, po of the poems he wrote are about Vermeer paintings, and he really gets into them. Um, what I said when we gave our talk at the Dove Block Project that published the chapbook uh, is that Jim's poems really inhabit the paintings. Mine take off from them and his really get into them and, you know, 30, 40 lines of, of really intense living inside the painting. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. Um, I should say if anybody has any questions for Bruce, um, please pass them along or on uh, the chat windows, either on Facebook or Twitter or no, Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along. Don't leave me a message on Twitter because that's too much. But um, I'll pass any along. I already have a couple questions here, but um, let's let's see some poems from Images into Words first. Sure. I'd actually like to read one of Jim's poems if I could. Actually, maybe a good one uh, to start with is the uh, the one on the back. Sure. We had a we had a painter friend in Florence where when we were living there, uh, and I went into his studio once, and there was an orange on the table, and he had painted a beautiful kind of hyper realistic orange, and I remembered that image. Uh, he passed away. His name is Don Campbell. And uh, this is the back of the book, and, and it sort of sums up the difference between, between uh, life and paintings. It's called Epilogue, Still Life. The perfect likeness of an orange upon the painter's canvas shines. The orange upon the table glows. Its shadow and its shadow lines are perfect. Nothing is going to change except the orange will sag and rot the perfect likeness of the orange, its shadow and shadow lines will not. So uh, I'm going to read the poem by uh, Jim Brenner. So this is uh, of uh, Vermeer's Milkmaid, and it's four quatrains. So this is by Jim Krenner, uh, and I apologize to him. Uh, I won't read it as well as he would, but... This is it, called Sustenance, looking at Vermeer's The Milkmaid. Emily Dickinson would have known how to explain this paradox of, on the one hand, our desire for a sip of that sinuous column of pouring milk and a nibble of the crusty bread with its granulated coating of seeds and light, and on the other hand, the perverse fact that we are actually secretly happy that we can't have them. And why we choose to linger here anyway, 
within sight of them rather than retreat to our own larders with their abundance of fresh loaves and bottles of cold milk, all for the asking. Miss Dickinson would, in her slyly quaint and deliciously slanted manner of speaking, wise us up to the subtle, if almost disfiguring, sprinkling of light on the skin of the milkmaid's face, the bread crust color of her bodice, the creaminess of her headdress, and the fresh white wall at her back, soft as the promise of a hand-sewn comforter. She might well, the savvy bread-baking bard of Amherst, remind us of lines she once wrote, delight is less than the sufficing longing, declaring with vermeer, unrequited desire as life's real nourishment. And there's that milkmaid painting. Yeah, beautiful poem by Jim Krenner. Yes. Yeah, and that's from Images into Words. Um, sorry, everybody, for the barking dog. That's my own dog this time. But the <laughs> but the construction people are inside. He can't be inside or he eat them. So, we, um, we have a new puppy, so it should meet your, your new kitten. <laughs> maybe yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we got the kitten like, I don't know, three months ago or two months ago, and it took about that long for them to get along, the German Shepherd and the, and the kitten, but they do now. Yeah. Um, so, so about ekphrastic poems, can you walk me through like how you would go to about approaching an ekphrastic poem? Because we do that once a month with the ekphrastic challenge, and like 500 people give it their best shot. And what do you think goes into a good ekphrastic poem? How do you think you make it work when you do it? Because you've done a whole book of them with Jim. <laughs> well, as I said, I'm not sure mine work the way uh, I, I like your ekphrastic poems in Rattle. And I think I do something rather odd and probably art historians even not when my wife likes my poems about the paintings, but um, they really take off perhaps too quickly from the painting. You know, it's like reading something and immediately jumping into something else. Um, so uh, I did look closely at the painting. Maybe I could explain it with uh, one of the, the first poem in the uh, book, uh, Whistler's Nocturne. We have friends in New Jersey. I, I'm from Philadelphia. We often go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And there's this very small painting by Whistler, you can see it, called Nocturne. And when you're looking at it on the wall, it was darker even than it seems in this reproduction. And I was standing, and it's small, and I was standing in front of it and thinking, I don't see anything. This is just sort of a dark space. And then I was standing longer, looking at it more closely. And very gradually, I began to see, no, no, it's not just a dark space. It's This is like a dark mass. And the, there's a tower there. And then there's reflections. So this is water. And this is the sky. Um, and so the poem that I wrote about it in, in couplets uh, really reflects how the sense of the painting, the the context, the meaning of it, uh, grow, you know, comes to somebody who just lets it happen and looks at it. Uh, and so I think that's, I put it first because I think that's what I was doing in all of these. I'm looking at them. You look at them, you notice things. My wife, Bonnie, had previously given a lecture on um, Christina's world, which was her, an introductory lecture 
um, for her art history classes. And it was a very good lecture that helped students at the beginning notice the expressive content of, of paintings. And I was in the position of one of those students. I would look at the painting and very gradually uh, it would start to make sense. I would see what it was about and then I would be responding to it emotionally. Um, and so I think my reaction to Nocturne was like my reaction to a lot of the paintings and, you know, writing ekphrastic poetry. At first, it seems like nothing, dark and green, so indistinct there barely is a scene. But stay a while longer, step away, a cityscape emerges. You can say you almost see, although you can't see quite, reflections on the water. It is night or almost night, and now it's almost clear, and you are present, neither there nor here. Um, and I think that's what happens when you look at something, you're neither there nor here, like Wallace Stevens' poem about so-and-so uh, uh, looking at a painting, that uh, you're in some kind of middle ground, Mm -hmm. And you inhabit that. You you exist there for a while, and that's part of the pleasure of looking at art. Yeah, that was Nocturne, and again, these are uh, and that was after uh, Whistler's painting Nocturne, and this is from Images into Words. Where would people pick up a copy of this? Um, it's the the Dove Block Project. Can you say anything about that before we? Sort of uh, sure, the Dove Dove Block uh, is. Uh, Arthur Dove was uh, expressing a painter who lived in Geneva, New York in the 1930s. Uh, his father was uh, owned a uh, brick, I think a brick making uh, company. And in downtown Geneva, there's a large building that was owned by Arthur Dove's father and where he had a studio. Um, and fairly recently, a um, number of people got together and created this space, the whole building actually, uh, as an art center. And it has events. It's encouraging people in Geneva and elsewhere around New York to come and, and celebrate the arts and their workshops, all sorts of things. Uh, and I think uh, our friend who is the co-chair co of the board there had the idea of asking Bonnie to give this lecture on art history, but also uh, having Jim and, and I um, come and read our poems. And it was her idea to do the chapbook, and it, it came out beautifully. We're very, we're very happy about it. Um, but uh, that was free at the uh, reading, and there are copies available there. Um, but I think it could be ordered if if one goes to the Doug, just you know, go on the internet to the Dove Block Project. Um, whoever you would write to there would be able to send a copy. You could order it, and I think I believe it sells for fifteen dollars. But they would tell you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. That was uh, images into words. Um, mm -hmm. There's a question from Cindy Gore. Um, have you found an essential element that seems to make a successful chapbook since you've written dozens? Is there, and, and just in general, what do you think the distinction is between a chapbook and a, and a full length book as far as like how the, the poems fit together and, and how they should operate? A uh, full length book could often be composed of several different chapbooks. Um, I think a lot of people tend to think of a chapbook as a series of poems that are related in some way 
It can be very tenuous, but not just disparate poems put down. Um, I mentioned to you, Tim, um, Judith Kitchen, who was a wonderful Rochester writer and sort of force for poetry uh, in the 80s and 90s with State Street Press around Rochester. And uh, Judy did was brilliant at putting together chapbooks. She could just, if you handed her 30 or 40 poems, she would immediately put them in an order. I, I had friends who had, she did this for, and they said, I didn't even know I wrote anything like that. The order is important. You know, poems talk back and forth to each other. Uh, and I think there's a kind of coherence to the whole. Um, it's, you know, you can have a lot of good poems, but if they're not connected in some way, it somehow doesn't feel like a chapbook. Uh, a longer book like mine, this is like 200 pages or something. Uh, this has several different chapbooks in it, um, you know, and they can be quite different from one another. So a chapbook generally, I think people think of as maybe shorter than 36. Of course, Rattle has its own chapbook series, but 36 pages, maybe arbitrarily 30 to 36 or even shorter. Mm -hmm. um, many, many of my um, chapbooks were published by um, um, Foothills Publishing, mm -hmm. uh, which is an upstate publisher. Michael Zarnecki has run that for many years, published hundreds and hundreds of chapbooks, done wonderful things for a whole bunch of writers. But, um, you know, often the if one is writing, starting to write, uh, the general advice is try to publish a chapbook first. You know, when you've published, have a kind of a publishing record in magazines and maybe a chapbook or two, then you can start looking at a full-length collection. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is it is hard to publish full-length collections. And now that, you know, internet, you know, people are very good at putting together things. Uh, if you have friends who are very good and, and you have a good collection, you can start a press and publish it. Yeah, yeah, it's never been easier than it is now. And um, and chapbooks, I think the great thing is that they're cheap. I mean, we, you know, at a run of 10,000, which is how many we print of everything, um, you know, the, the regular issue of Rattle, which is 100 yeah. pages in perfect bound, I think they cost like a buck 50 each, but the chapbook is like 40 cents. So, yeah. um, so it's mm -hmm. really, you know, and, and the, for us, the limit is um, up to 48 pages because it has a, um, like this book does here, has the... Um, um, stapled binding instead of a full binding. And that's how many, that's the max they can fold and bind with a staple. <laughs> so, yeah. I would say though that, that I, students often just wanted to rush into print and, you know, including wanted to get jobs in New York and publishing because they thought that was the way to get their books published. Uh, one should not, one should make sure that it's going to be as good as possible. You know, it might not be what you will eventually write, but it shouldn't just be published for the sake of publishing. There's just so much out there. Uh, it won't be respected unless it's 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 good. And, uh, you know, show it to other people. Get the best advice you can. Don't be worried if people are critical because that's going to make it better. Um, but, you know, don't just because you can publish something you know, that is not necessarily going to do you a favor. You, you know, it's better to 
really have something that you're very proud of and that you're proud to show to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's great advice. Um, we have a little bit more time if you don't mind staying a little bit longer because I'd like to do some more poems. Let's do, do you want to do another poem and then a little bit more conversation? I do actually because there's a poem in Images into Words that's the last one I wrote and it just happened. Uh, I am not on Facebook, but I get a lot of Facebook posts and I never know what I'm going to see. And one of the Facebook posts uh, came from a former student uh, and it had Chagall's uh, picture called the Ukrainian family, which turned, uh, it was a painting that Chagall did in 1941, I guess 1941 to 43. And it was so topical and moving. This was several months ago when the war, you know, this is June, I guess. Uh, and this painting just really hit me. And even though the, text for the book was already set. I wrote this uh, and then said it fits in, so I hope it can go in the book. Um, so if somebody wants to look it up, it's it's under Mark Chagall, the Ukrainian family you could easily find it. But this is kind of the description of the painting, uh, which is a shocking painting. And the poem mostly describes what's in the painting. It's called Witnesses. The woman clutches a baby while behind her, her husband clutches her. The ground behind them is reddish orange. The houses are ramshackle, off kilter. One is burning, the sky streaked yellow. Behind the couple, a rooster and a donkey stand in the open. Behind the blazing house, a horse's head protrudes. It's chaos, chaos. The man and woman are staring straight at us as if they see us, know us. We take it in as it takes us. We're part now of a horror that does not, will not change. We see it and know it. We feel it become that couple for that moment before we leave it, leave them, walk away. Chagall accuses us and we are guilty. And that was Witnesses by uh, After the Ukrainian Family by Mark Chagall. And right. here's the painting for people who are watching. If you're listening, you'll have to Google it yourself. But here is the actual <laughs> painting. And you can see the way um, Bruce just goes through and describes it, sort of starting with what your where your gaze is first with the couple and then moving to the background, um, the house, the donkeys back here, and all the bright red. Yeah, powerful, powerful painting. This um, uh, The Ukrainian Family by Chagall. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's a great poem, and it's cool to be able to pull up the, the picture too, Bruce. Um, let's see, so... You know, you we talked about formal poetry a lot. Do you have a favorite form? Is there something that you you find yourself drawn to the most, and, and is there a reason why? No, I don't have a favorite. I, I suppose if I had to answer that, I would say villanelles because I've written villanelles from for a very long time, and a lot of them, uh, and I think they're long enough to be you know where you can really build up power. Um, I, among the poems I sent you was the very first Villanelle I ever wrote. And uh, 
I realized I I just I guess I have an affinity for the form because it just felt you know really comfortable to me, and I started to write a lot of them. And it's only more recently that I've written poems like um, triolets and pantoums. Um, I taught a course at Wells called the Maker's Craft, and I had students writing um, in those different forms, and it was interesting. Um, what they were capable of. And that was toward the end of my career. And I thought I should have been doing this all along, but I never thought of it. Um, but I, if there's time, I'd like to read the uh, the very first Villanelle I ever wrote, which um, I'm going to find. Oh, it's called Spilled. And it was written in 1987. It's not the liquid spreading on the floor, a half a minute's labor with the mop. It's everything you've ever spilled and more. That's the stupid broken spout that wouldn't pour, the nasty little salesman in the shop. It's not the liquid spreading on the floor, a stain perhaps, a new unwelcome chore, but scarcely cause for sobs that will not stop. It's everything you've ever spilled and more. It's the disease for which there is no cure, the starving child, the taunting, brutal cop. It's not the liquid spreading on the floor, but through a planet rotten to the core where things grow old, get soiled, snap off or drop. It's everything you've ever spilled and more. This vision of yourself, you can't ignore poor, wretched extra clinging to a prop. It's not the liquid spreading on the floor. It's everything you've ever spilled and more. And, uh, backstory, just briefly. Uh, we were living in Florence and we were having a small dinner party and uh, I dropped the pot of espresso coffee all over the floor. I didn't even think about it. It was a mess, but nobody cared very much. And I wrote this the next day. And obviously, it's not only about dropping something. Um, but that's partly how I guess it was ready to be written and the occasion came. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you determine what form you're going to be writing in? Do you do you, do you, with the first few lines? Do you hear it and then know, or do yeah. you do you end up revising poems later into different forms, like from one form to the other? Yeah, very hard to do. Sometimes the first line can be uh, the first line either of a villanelle or a sonnet, and I'm not sure what it'll be. But by the time you write the second or third, you know. Frost Frost said you, you set it down. You know, when you write the first line, you don't know yet what kind of form it'll be if you're writing a formal poem. Second line, obviously, if it rhymes, there are going to be couplets involved. Um, if the third line rhymes with the first line, it's going to be A, B, A, B, probably. Um, but by the time you've written three or four lines, generally, uh, you know what kind of poem it'll be. And, I realized that in answer to why I write in form, um, for some reason, I've always tended to write in individual lines, um, you know, not in the images uh, or not by rhythm necessarily, but lines come to me. 
So I've written a whole lot of couplets, obviously, if that's the way you write. But uh, I think most of the poems I write, you know, are line by line. And because they are in the forms they're in, uh, the next the next lines just come mm -hmm. uh, kind of almost automatically. You know, they're given to me by something and they're there. So yeah. I'm not complaining about it. Well, that's just wonderful. Um, just great poems throughout the day. Let's let's finish out with one last poem, Bruce. What do you want to read last? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, I know what uh, I mentioned, The Healing Muse, and a poem that's not a uh, formal poem was written uh, for a friend of ours who uh, died of pancreatic cancer a number of years ago. Sorry, I got the number here, but um, gosh, it's like giving a reading and not finding the ones. That's all right. Last lunch. Okay. Last lunch. This is for Herbert Siegel. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and it's a, a free verse poem actually, so yes. we get to hear. Well, yes, yes, um, yeah. This is a very good friend, and we he had. Uh, this was the last time we. Uh, not that I guess it might have been the last time we even saw him. Uh, and this was in the Healing Muse, so this is the kind of poem that's in the Healing Muse. So it's called Last Lunch. And this happened in New York City, as people will probably recognize. During our last lunch, when you only pushed food around on your plate, you suddenly got up because you heard a couple speaking Greek at the next table and walked over and introduced yourself and exchanged pleasantries and information all in your best Greek, which was apparently pretty good, or at least good enough, since you came back beaming. It turned out he was a doctor and knew your doctor, and the two of them complimented you on your knowledge of Greek and asked where you had acquired it and you got to tell them you had always loved languages and had taught yourself, and it no longer mattered since you were clearly so happy that the food in front of you would never be eaten because the restaurant that afternoon was filled with noise and joy. Yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bruce. That was last Thank lunch. You. Yeah, just wonderful poems throughout and great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for being a guest. It was really a, a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. Thank yeah, you. yeah, take care. And that was Bruce Bennett. Um, to find more of Bruce's work, you can go to his website, which is the title of that um, new and selected book we talked about that came out in 2017, um, Just Another Day in Just Our Town. That's Just Another Day in Just Our Town, like all one word, dot com. And that is Bruce's website. Let me actually pull it up right here. This is the website. Um, just another day in justourtown.com for more of Bruce Bennett's work and pick up the book by that name at his recommendation. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to the open lines. Uh, the prompt for this week coming into the show was to write a, um, um, take the last line of a poem from a literary magazine and make that the first line of a new poem. And so that's the prompt for this week, but you can share whatever you'd like. You can share poems about current events. You can share poems about um, um, current or, um, you know, news stories. You can share poems that have been published recently, or you can share prompt poems or whatever you'd like to share. What you do is go to the uh, open mic at rattle.com. Email me at open mic at rattle.com. Um, email me the poem so I can show it on the screen as we go. 
and then copy this invite link. I'm going to go and paste it into Facebook and YouTube's chat windows. You can join us there. Right there, it's pinned to uh, Facebook. And it's pinned to YouTube. So join in, share a poem, whatever you'd like, and email it to openmic at rattle.com first so I can share it, uh, show it as you go. I'm going to take a quick break, and I will be right back with Open Lines. Thanks a lot. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, now, the Open Lines, again, email me the poem, and then only if you want to share poems. Only come if you want to share poems. But if you'd like to share poems, come over here to the Zoom link that I've deployed on Facebook and YouTube. Um, I don't have any poem this week. It's just too busy, which I feel bad about after talking about Bruce you know, writing poem every day. Um, but I can say that our Little League team is 3-0. and We are undefeated. So I guess that is my poem, Making the Kids Happy by Winning Our Games. <laughs> um, but hopefully, maybe I'll take up Bruce's thing and try to write a poem every day this week. And then if I give it 15 minutes, you know, one, one of those days, something good will happen maybe, right? Um, but anyway, let's see what we have with us today. And let's go first to Carla Schwartz. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing, Carla? I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. It's gotten cold. It's a little cold, but I did go swimming yesterday in the lake. So I'm oh, wow. still. That must be really cold out there. Yeah, you have to move fast. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it makes you swim harder. So um, I have a poem today that I sent you. And um, this poem was sort of, it was last week's prompt, uh, but with this week's prompt. And I did. I did put a link to an online journal that gave me the, the, the prompt for this week. So basically, there was a, a poem that I read, <clears throat> which is called "Last Conversation with Nikanar Para" in uh, "Swim Every Day" S W W I M Every Day, and that last end of it had a quote from Hawking in it, and um, so I used that in this poem. And uh, but it's also last week's prompt as well. And this is called um, except for the unknown um, person in history is me. OK, <laughs> Okay. so I but I was inspired by last week's uh, the, the week before um, the feature person uh, interviewee, uh, because, um, you know, talking about women and in, in, in STEM and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's me. So it's called. Erdish number. Hmm. I don't have it actually. Did you emailed it to me? I did a PDF. Let's see. Uh, let me let me uh, go here and go to sent items. Uh, well, I'll do it again here um, to rattle. Uh, to open mic at rattle.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Okay. I know. And then <laughs> let me just get that in here and. Uh, submissions in here and, and, and sent. So I'm just the, it's a poem without a subject line right now. You're getting it, get it. Okay, sounds good. I'll keep an eye on it. Why don't you start reading it and I'll jump, I'll add it sure. once you get there. Sure, sure. It's called Erdish Number. People don't know, there was a guy named Paul Erdish, mathematician, who was an itinerant mathematician. And he wrote more uh, paper papers than anybody else. And uh, in mathematics. And so just like people have their six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whoever, 
there's also an Erdős number, which is how close you are to being a co-author of Paul Erdős. And and my number is four, and that's in this poem. Oh, interesting. Okay, we we got it now too. So we're we're all watching. Now. All right. My father took me to hear Hawking lecture when I was 16, back when computers were nascent and the program that presented his speech was poor. Still, even then I understood he was speaking about black holes and black body radiation. Hawking once said to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. My Erdős number four, same as Hawking's, an attribute I garnered in 1984, even before my doctorate, before the string of grants most rejected, before the invitation to the National Science Foundation to sit on a review panel. You sit here, you token woman, and keep your mouth zipped, where the other panelists, four of them, and there's that number again, all men wanted to fund only the scientific equivalent of the rich and famous or their friends, no concern for the underrepresented or the fry smaller than them. This was before social media, before crowdfunding, when the NSF or the military were almost the only funding options in the realm of publish or perish. So on this panel, quietly zipped, I wanted to slip back onto the couch at my DC hotel, but didn't. Only after so, but didn't. Only after so many years of relegation to staring at the lowly state of my feet, did I understand that this hadn't been my place, or maybe it wasn't my time. But since I realized I had achieved something not many others had, but since. I realized I had achieved something not many others had. My Erdős number, relatively low and named for Erdős, who would have termed me dead for having stopped my practice. Erdős, who before couch surfing was a thing, couch surfed most of his life in exchange for a co-write with a host. And Erdős, who'd sit down to a meal while his laundry was spinning with conjecture in banter until a proof was forthcoming. Oh, very interesting. I never heard of that Erdős number. I'm trying to look more into that. Uh, but that's Carla Schwartz. I'm also at CB99videos if you want to check her out anywhere else. That's where you'd find her on YouTube or pretty much anywhere else. That's the Erdős number. Thanks so much, Carla, for joining, as always. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for putting up with it. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> um, oh, I should say, I think we have to do a one-poem limit today, by the way. So if you have two poems, uh, pick your favorite one because we have uh, 10 people still lined up. But let's go to Jennifer Elise Wang next. Hey. Hey, Jen. How are you doing today? I'm good. So my poem is a bit of a weird one because I got stumped. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I decided to use uh, Exist Otherwise, the, the magazine that I talked about uh -huh, uh, yeah. that I was in and just randomly scrolled through the PDF file. And uh, the final line was Sense of Humor. And so the only thing I could think of was how people uh, often say like, oh, I want some, like, I want a potential partner to be, have a sense of humor. So I wound up creating a list poem, I guess. Uh -huh. It's a bit of a list poem, but with a twist. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, let's hear it. So checklist for the ideal man. Sense of humor. Great personality. Dresses well. Smart. Friendly. Hardworking. Good hair. 
nice eyes, hot body, able to cook, works out regularly, smile reaches his eyes, keeps up with personal grooming habits, has a job with health insurance and a 401k and an upward track, respects women in his life and is polite to everyone, has at least a bachelor's degree and plenty of common sense, knows how to put together an outfit and dress for special occasions, gregarious and charismatic in a crowd, but not attention seeking, can laugh with me, but doesn't make crude jokes or dad jokes. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for sharing. I mean, you had me until the uh, the good hair and then maybe the upward track. <laughs> yeah. I I like, it doesn't get I, any better than this. So I can't really, uh, I can't go up. <laughs> yeah. But, but so I, I thought I would play on the, on people's lists and how they're usually very general, but people actually mean something else. So yeah, this is kind of just a fun thing. Yeah, that very good. A lot of fun. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jennifer. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, take care. Um, next up, let's go to Carolyn Codd. And remember, Carolyn, make sure your um, stream in the background is muted or off. So let's see. If yeah, works. I think it is. Excellent. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, good to hear you. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just have, it's one poem, but in English, one in English and in Spanish. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. Which one do you want and, uh, to read first? I'll do the English first. Okay. And this is because I, I've been trying to work on two or three poems, but things have kind of piled up on me and I couldn't finish any of them. So this, I decided to participate by reading this that I wrote a few years ago in Spain. And I don't remember if I wrote it originally in, in English or Spanish, but um, it's just about frustration when trying to write. Okay. So the first in English is question. What is the meaning of life? Or should a poet have to do the ironing? And then in Spanish, it's pregunta. ¿Y qué significa la vida? ¿O debe un poeta tener que planchar la ropa? Oh, that was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. Since the pandemic, I finally learned how to not iron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that by wrinkle-free shirts is what mine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Carolyn. Great to see you. Okay. Thank you. See you. Bye. It was Carolyn Codd with a question. And um, next, let's go to um Janthi Rangan. Yeah, we can't un you can't un Okay, let's go. We'll go inside. We'll try to come back. We'll go to Jerry uh Jerry Stevenson for the first time in a okay. long time. Oh, Janthi's back. Okay. We'll do yeah. Janthi. There she is. There she okay. is. Okay. How you doing? Thank you so much uh for being patient. Um yeah, so today I'm sharing a poem which was published in this magazine. It's called uh, stone crop oh that's beautiful i love that cover yeah yeah it, it, it's a beautiful paintings um yeah i was looking at it and loved it um so here is my poem it's called anonymous donor a pine siskin finch skyped me screeching scolds i backed off 180 degrees pittering scared of a bird the size of my palm. I was a threat to her hatchlings close by. The bird was fighting me to give her chicks a peep chance. In an online news item, I saw a similar instinctual nerve in a black hijab framed face next to a rifle scope, standing her ground for women's right to education not backing off 180 degrees 
as I did with the bird. At the crossroads of a deadlock, without an entry, without an exit, beyond the mowing, um, mowing of a machine, she stood to give a peeping chance, not to her own hatchlings, but to the unrelated humans she would never meet. She'd never meet, never would. Yeah. That's it. Thank yeah, you. Wonderful poem. Anonymous donor. Yeah, beautiful story. And such an important thing to be doing. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, this uh, woman you know, facing a, a Taliban's rifle. Wow. And this picture was in the news. It was so moving. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's amazing how people have so much courage. It really is. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. That was wonderful. Thank you. Yep. Take care. It was uh, Jayanthi Rangan with uh, Anonymous Donor. And now we'll go to Jerry Stevenson. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? I'm doing good, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great now that you're here. It's been a long time. I can't remember it's how many months. Ages. It has. What are Forever. you doing? Forever. I've house renovation, mm-hmm. deck, siding, windows. Ah, uh, yeah. Best I like news. the windows in the back. Those look nice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're really pleased. Uh, our daughter came for another two and a half months this year oh, wow. with our granddaughter. And our son-in-law kept showing up every couple of weeks for a week or so. We had a marvelous summer. Oh, Poetry great. suffered a little bit. <laughs> well, glad you're getting but back to it. Good. But, uh, you know, all things are important. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we're not, but we're not complaining because apparently I've been getting published in a few places. Excellent. Out of the blue. Yeah. Was, the trick must have been quit submitting and they come back to you. I don't know. If you build it, they will come. I don't know. <laughs> so confusing. But what I got for you today is a response. Okay. And I picked from a friend of mine, actually. PC Vandal has a book out called... Uh, the Blue Moth of Morning. And she's a friend of mine. She's been a lot of help to me. So I flipped it open to a page. And I thought, wow, how could this happen? It's my favorite poem by her. Well, someone is probably dog-eared. That's why it went to it. So anyways, I, I put a poem to the last line. May I start? Yeah, go ahead. This is a Some of These Things. Okay. It's called Some of These Things. <clears throat> Not like are like the others. Blurry is the line of division between joy, contentment, and grief. The lack of this clarity definition is the tie that entwines them. Upon inspection, each are different, yet can land on the same bullseye. When stumbling through the days to days, similarity whose toes they tread on can be anything spinning on the jukebox of life. Timing temple Viennese waltz to a bunny hop our measure taken by the dance observed, by the folk we know, think we know, are known by, the mirror of their echoes that they hum. When the stillness reigns, clarity, passion, love, offer safe harbors, lines and anchors hold true. The fog may lift, the last line, vast as an ocean with no ships in sight. Ah, very cool. Thanks so Thank much, you. Jerry. It's great, great to hear that. Great to see you again. It's been a long Good time. Good to see you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Don't worry. We'll be knocking on your door a little bit more <laughs> often. And just so you know, my wife just scooted my golden retriever off my lap Excellent. the second before. We yeah, went I've on. been trying. While you're reading, I was trying to like usher the dog somehow with like my magical. Because he's right, I was, I was doing, out the yeah. window now. <laughs> anyway. Anyways, thanks, yeah. Tim. Great Take show care. again. Awesome. Take care. Thanks, Jerry. Good to see you. Okay, bye. Yep, bye. So Jerry Stevenson with uh, some of these things. And now let's go to who's up next? Dick Westheimer. 
Hey, Tim Green. Hey, Jake. How are you doing today? Good. What a wonderful interview with Bruce. That was just, I I, I could have gone for another hour. It I know. Like I was tempted. Was I was there. tempted to drag him out, but he's got to get back to that beautiful place he lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the other thing is the construction noise is not coming through. Zoom oh, Zoom's good. a good job of filtering it out. Yeah, so. hopefully, yeah, because this mic is a very one of those like it depend it change you know it's, it mutes very well or whatever you'd say. So hopefully, yeah, Zoom Zoom has a filter. I'm sure you've heard people on Zoom where they're playing instruments or something and they sound all cranky. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. because Zoom is does a great job of filtering out non voices yeah. unless you change the settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, hopefully it's not showing up on the stream. Um, as much but but they are far away they're the other side of the house (laughs) um so i pulled a tim this week and at 7 30 i thought i (laughs) promised i'd do a prompt poem and i'm going to do one before eight o'clock very nice okay well that that is definitely a tim green although i didn't i didn't i wasn't myself this week i guess you could say so uh, i haven't even read it to myself so this this will be the first time through okay let's hear it okay uh, and the, li- the first line is from a poem that's in the Comstock Review um, by uh, Susan Johnson, Bordertown People is what it's called. Tempering expectations one autumn afternoon. There's a whole new country on the other side of this frayed flannel. The birds see the one that's exposed to the sun. The soft nubs that rum rub against my skin remind me of my love, who I won't see for another week. The work I do is warming. Against all modesty, I shed the shirt, drape it over the handle of the shovel I've stepped into the ground. What small sinew I have strains against my digging fork as I turn dirt in preparation for planting time. It's garlic season, when I tuck little cloves root end first into this bed I make. I am a machine made of autumn, sun, and light breeze, breakfast, blackberries, and honeyed yogurt. Small sweat trickles down my neck, glistens this sagging frame, and makes me ready for her return, when we will be the warm sun to the other's bareness. Unless, like today, clouds roll in as they sometimes do. Oh, very nice. And that's a 30-minute poem, which goes to show you how uh, if you write a lot, you can crank them out because <laughs> that was good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> keep those uh, that, keep those muscles stretched and flexed and ready to go. I guess, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Same as gardening. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Dick. Always a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thanks so much, Tim. Yep. Bye. Bye. Um, let's go next to Bev Wendell Atherstone. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bev. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Well, I had a poem published this week. Oh, congratulations! By Spillwords. Uh huh. Thank you. Yeah, published on Tuesday. So um, usually you can't have uh, a picture of me and audio at the same time, so I'll just get rid of the picture, okay? Okay. I will try. (laughs) Where do I go? Uh, Well, actually, it looks pretty good. I think because you're inside, maybe it's okay. Because a lot of times you're outside, maybe you don't get as much bandwidth. But I I can't get to the poem, though, Bev. Wendell Atherstone. I'll see if I is it on. If I Google it, will I find it? I put it on your. I sent it to your rattle to. Yeah, I got it there, but the Tim. link is like to a notes, a shared notes, and I can't open it because I don't have an account with iCloud. I guess. But I have it here. Oh. I have it here on Spillwords, so we're better. 
Oh, you found it on Spellwords? I did. Yep, yep, right here. <laughs> Aren't okay. you the cleverest? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, what do you want to say about was, this before we go? It was it was very fun that um, today we had a couple of pantoons, and uh, I, I really like the form. I've only discovered it because of your program. So um, I wanted... I, I had a theme, and then I realized that the theme went beyond just one pantoum. So I decided to make a double pantoum. Mm -hmm. So it's the real cost of coal. Very good. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah. The coal miner descends into his dark cave where he, his father, and his father's father eked out a living for decades, enslaved. Their lives, traded for coal, profited others. While he, his father, and his father's father eked out a living for others they slaved, trading their lives to profit the owners. Anthracite scars on their loves engraved, on their lungs engraved. Eking a scant living from coal enslaved, while anthracosis ravaged their lungs. Anthracite scars on their lungs engraved. They were powerless to protect their own sons. After ebony dust had ravished, has ravished his lungs, sensing his toil brings an early grave, yet too ill to protect his very own sons, the coal miner descends down into his cave. The coal miner descends into his black cave where he, his father, and his father's father eked out a living for decades enslaved. Their lives traded for coal, profiting others. While he, his father, and his father's father eked out a living for others they slaved, trading their lives to profit the owners as anthracite on their lungs, scars engraved. Eking barely a living by coal enslaved as millions burned coal that savaged Earth's lungs and anthracosis, their scarred lungs enraged. How will we protect the earth's and our young? As millions burned coal that savaged earth's lungs, sensing our toil portends an early grave, yet too ill to protect the earth's and our young, the coal miner descends back into his cave. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bev. You've become a master of the uh, Pantoum um, in just a short time. It's great to see. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Take care. Bye. That's Bev Mendel Allerstone with uh, The Real Cost of Coal from uh, Spillwords. So if you go to spillwords.com, The Real Cost of Coal, very easy to find. Um, thanks for sharing that, Bev. Thank you. And uh, let's go next to Mike Bales. It's a good night for pantoons. It it's is a nice uh, thing. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, I yeah, I missed last week because I was doing a reading uh, at a, with some others at the Bendor Public Library. Um, this you said you wanted a couple weeks ago to whet your appetite about some historical figure. Uh -huh. um, I'm not even sure. I'll, he's a figure in Iowa. I'm not even sure all Iowans know him. Really? Hmm. When I was a yeah, when it's a flagger in northern. Iowa, a town called Cresco. I saw signs posted for a guy named Norman Borglog. I think he won some kind of Nobel or something for his work. Yeah, for, um, I think he uh, invented like modern factory farming and maybe nitrogen fertilizer or something like that. Is that whom? 
he started the Green Revolution. Yeah, exactly. I tried to research it, and I didn't find a lot about that. But um, there's even a, like a word. World Food Prize Institute in Des Moines, and there's an award given out to someone who contributed to agriculture each fall, mm-hmm. the Norman Borglog Award. So anyway, I discovered while I'm flagging, which is always good for my writing yeah, when I was sure. doing that, and this is called Norman Borglog. He grew up in the middle of midst of cornfields, Cresco, Iowa, near the Minnesota border. Stocks rustled in summer winds, And inspired by another calling, he said, feed the world. Seasons ago, he studied plants as they rose from the ground and looked for answers to stop the scourge of famines and wars. And wars were waged far away from this land, fields stained by blood in foreign countries, while the revolution of greenery he brought forth spread across the world. Now a sign at the edge of town proclaims his fame, as cars crowd the highway as it winds its way into a thicket of fields. A voice in stillness stillness of the air cries out, this is his land, this is ours. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, Norman Borglog uh, saves so many lives from famine. Really, yeah, thanks for sharing Uh, that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yeah, take care. Mike Bales. And uh, next up, let's go to Kashiana Singh. Hey, Tim. Hey, Kashiana, how are you doing? I am doing well, thank you. Um, I sent you an email, Tim. It's got, it's got a link. It, yeah, I have it on uh, the Bob I, Show, yeah. Yeah, I thought I wouldn't do haiku this time, <laughs> but I had this publication come through, and I was like, okay, that's, that's a sign. I need to stay with the haiku. <laughs> Great, yeah, yeah. We, well, we love your haiku. And by the way, your camera's not on. I don't know if that's intentional, but uh, either way. Yeah, that I... Yes, that's fine. Okay, I'm great. without camera. Sounds today. good. All right. Do you have it? I do. From Under the Basho, which is a great magazine for um, for, for haiku. Yes. Um, here's how they go. Okay. Receding rain, the pause between thrush trills. Receding rain, the pause between thrush trills. Carnucopia, another abandoned placenta. Carnucopia, another abandoned placenta. Waltzing rain, the lingering ache in my bones. Waltzing rain, the lingering ache in my bones. Endless sky, the perfect shape of an open palm. Endless sky, the perfect shape of an open palm. Wrinkled tomatoes, my skin succumbs to your touch. Wrinkled tomatoes, my skin succumbs to your touch. Thank you. Tim, I want to highlight this this last one, the wrinkled tomatoes, was mm-hmm. from the prompt uh, about the body that you had given. This It was a series of these poems, and this one got accepted. Very good. Well, thanks. Always a pleasure hearing your haiku. They're wonderful um, a great set of five there. Thanks so much for uh, sharing those, Kashiana. Thank you, Tim. Have a good night. Yep, you too. It was Kashiana Singh. And then you can find Under the Bosch Show, um, this magazine. It's a journal of um, haiku. And um, I think it comes out, I think they have a new issue once a year, I believe. Uh, but you can find it Under the Bosch Show, all one word, Under the Bosch Show. And Bosch Show, of course, is B-A-S-H-O, underthebosch.com. So check that out. And um, 
a lot of wonderful haiku there. Let's go uh, next to uh, Nate. Am I here? Yep, there you go. Nate, Jacob, how you doing? Okay. Good. I'm sitting in the dark of my vehicle. <laughs> Excellent. That's a good place for a radicals. How come you're out there? <laughs> uh, I'm at my daughter's uh, guitar lesson. Ah. It's possible she'll interrupt us. So Very nice. Okay, so you sent this one. <laughs> it's an HTML file. Let's see oh. if I can open it somehow. Um, you might have to just uh, read it, though, because I'm not sure if it's going to okay. open. Leave it to me. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, you just have to read it. I can't open it. So um, <laughs> I just won't. I don't know why. HTML file should open, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so explain okay. it and then, and then read it to us. Okay. Well, this is based on the last two lines of uh, one of the worst poems I've ever written. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was about the, uh, what do you call it? The dry weather. Um, and I, I turned it into something about my grandmother. Huh, okay. So the, the title is The Terrible in, in, Impermanence of Grandmothers. And the last two lines of this poem are the last two lines of that previous attempt. And it has nothing to do with drought. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Terrible Impermanence of Grandmothers. She was here for so long. It blew rain hard enough my final visit that the next day, in bright and clean sunlight, under breezy white clouds, she forced me up onto the roof to check around for loosened shingles and new-formed cracks around the base of the crumbling chimney. Though mostly death, she claimed she had heard the bricks creaking and maybe the wing flap of raspy sheet or shakes, though all I had heard was the wind itself, whistling and misting into the bedroom around the sagging window panes, rattling in their crusty frames. Too much of life had forever been for grandma, an endless onslaught of imagined disasters, keeping her awake at all hours of most nights. On my stays with her, I'd try to sleep through her storm, pretending every morning to repair the imagined damage. She's gone now. It rained on me last night, cats and dogs, she'd have said, followed by what I always referred to as her Depression-era laugh, hushed and inhaled not wanting anyone to think she was enjoying life amid so much trouble in this world gone mad. Nothing is as it once was, nor can it be so. I should be looking at my own roof now, replacing old shingles above the leaks I have. Yet here I am, staring at the sky reflected in a giant puddle that was not here yesterday and will not be here tomorrow. Well, that was great. Very touching. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nate. Thank you. Love it. Yeah, always a pleasure. Take care and, and hope to see you in the truck soon. What? <laughs> All right, bye. bye. Nate Jacob with uh, The Terrible Impermanence of Grandmothers. Very touching poem. Um, let's go next, um, last but not least, to Brent Stoffer. Hey, Jim. Hey, Brent. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm, d I'm doing really well. Is it getting uh, cold out been... there in the garage, though? I see the hat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, the colors have started to turn here in in uh, Connecticut. Uh huh. And um, I guess you must that, be a little farther uh, north then. Well, I'm I'm a little bit. I think I'm. I think I'm a little bit south of where Bruce is, but <laughs> not by much. He's upstate New York, right? Yeah, but upstate's not that up when it's the middle. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, <laughs> they started to turn a little bit here. Uh -huh. um, I, I anyway. I loved Bruce's interview. It was fantastic, uh, inspiring, 
And also like a shocking reminder that free verse as we know it has not been around for but a blink of the eye. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The history of of, uh, poetry and stuff. Um, But okay, so um, this poem echoes the theme of Nate's a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, uh, for my poetry journal, I chose rattle because uh, it was sitting right next. It was sitting right next to my bed, and I'm like, "Oh, I'll just pick one of these." And you'll never guess. Actually, you might be able to guess it. So you might be able to see it. I right can see now. it right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who who I landed on was uh, your friend and mine, Dick Westheim. Uh huh. And so, if nothing else, this poem has a great title because the. <laughs> The last line of his poem is pretty good. Um, two things about this poem, just in case somebody doesn't know. Um, there's something, I think it's called the microwave background cosmic radiation or something like that. And um, it's something left over from the Big Bang. And if you have an old analog TV and you turn it on and you turn it to it, well, actually... No channel will receive a signal these days, but that that snowy fuzz that mm-hmm. you hear, uh, some portion of that is hey kitty, is some portion of that is the microwave cosmic background radiation from the Big Bang, um, and the other thing to know is that a blackjack is a kind of an oak tree. Uh huh. So that's. Well, here, let me give the cat, you. the cat finally jumped around. Here's a cat cameo, I promise. Yes. He's right here. Yes. This is Winston. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he loves, uh, loves uh, at night, the moths on the screen, you know, because they're attracted oh, to the true. light. They, uh, he loves those moths. So he's been entertaining us like he's playing an uh, asteroid or something. But anyway, let's hear this, uh, let's hear this great poem, Brent. Asteroids is a pretty fun day. Okay. Um, hopeful pieces of the always falling apart. After Richard Westheim, I'm very pleased to say. You can hear the cosmic birth cry when you aim an old TV's antenna at the center of everything which is everywhere. The beginning is always in the thing. The thing is always going to end. The end is always in the beginning. Stuck in the entropic storm surge, swept along with spinning galaxies, racing electrons, and uprooted stop signs, everyone falls increasingly farther apart. What we love is always leaving, leaving what we'll always love. Our hearts will never be broken because they're always breaking. Lean your ear against the bark and hear once again a raspy buzz inside the plump acorn, ready to drop from the grip of the somber blackjack, older than we can remember. Uh, wonderful. Love that ending. That was uh, Hopeful Pieces of the Always Falling Apart after Richard yeah. Westheimer by Brent Yes, yeah, right. All in the My family. gratitude and apologies. His poem is great, I, I gotta say. It was uh, easy to get inspired by that. Awesome. Well, thanks. So, thanks for writing and sharing that, yeah. Brent. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Yep. Take care. Thanks, Tim. Yep. Have a good night. See y'all later. Bye. Bye. 
Yeah, and that was the last uh, guest for today, so I'm going to end the Zoom right now. And uh, really quickly, here is your Saiku for this week. Um, I didn't have a poem, but always, you know, a Saiku takes like a couple seconds, to be honest. This is a very interesting article. Um, this is from Live Science, but actually it's, an, it's a paper published um, in Frontiers in Psychology. But this is the article right here, once I get rid of the pop-ups. The article is... Love hormone oxytocin may help men broken hearts literally, lab study says. And, and then the study was done on fish and in human cells and found that um, oxytocin, which is the chemical that has a lot to do with like giving birth and attachment to, um, to, to children and, and love, you know, cuddling, you get a good dose of oxytocin from that, called the love hormone, um, also helps heal a certain kind of tissue. Can I find the name? Where is the name of it? Um, Anyway, there's a certain kind of tissue in the heart that's very difficult to heal, and oxytocin helps heal it. And so um, hugs heal a broken heart. Very fascinating little article right there um, from Live Science and uh, from Frontiers in Psychology. And here is your um, here is your Saiku for the day. The Saiku is heartbeat. At the heart of it, heartbeats. Heartbeat. At the heart of it, heartbeats. That is your Saiku for this week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, we already mentioned the prompt, uh, but next week's prompt is going to be in his long autobiographical poem, The Prelude. Wordsworth writes about what he called spots of time, small, memorable events we experience that thereafter remain in our consciousness and, quote, give profoundest knowledge, unquote, helping us determine who and what we are and what we may become. Write a poem in which you focus on one of those spots of time in your own life and what it has subsequently meant to you. That is your prompt for this week. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. And um, let's see, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be um, Nikita Parikh. Um, and Nikita was, we published her, speaking of ekphrastic poems, we published a really one of the most layered poems, just so many like levels of meaning. Um, is one of the ekphrastic challenge winners about a year and a half ago, maybe. Um, I think it was called Circles which has a new book out, My City is a Murder of Crows. And um, Nikita is in India, and so to accommodate that time, please note the special time. It's not going to be the regular time. It's going to be uh, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, which makes it 9.30 p.m., I believe, in India, which is the best time we could sort of all get together. So it's going to be a noon, a lunchtime Rattlecast, Rattlecast 163, with that great prompt from uh, Bruce Bennett. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Hope you have a great week, and I will see you uh, next week for the Critique of the Week and all that good stuff. Talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>